and welcome to Altamar, again broadcasting from our homes. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. We hope you're well and healthy in these difficult times. What's happening with oil and what will plummeting oil prices mean for producers, consumers, for the environment, and for global relations? The global appetite for oil has simply evaporated with the coronavirus crisis. Road traffic, air travel, ship movements, train transportation, electricity usage from around the world has shut down as cities have just simply stopped working, and that sent oil prices plummeting. So today, Mooney and I are going to address three big questions. What's happening? Whether the price of oil is going to recover or not, and more in depth, how this newer reality is going to affect geopolitics. We'll be joined by Francisco Monaldi. He's an expert on the political and economic effects of energy policy. He's originally from Venezuela, an oil country on life support at the moment, and is one of the world's leading experts on petroleum and significantly the good and the bad of petroleum's effects on developing countries. He's written extensively about the effects of the oil crisis in his country and the effects of oil around the world. Before he steps in, Peter, let's take a look at what happened. So the oil market obviously fell on its face with the world going into lockdown. Production cuts that were necessary to control prices caused by demand drops and lack of enough oil storage proved too slow. And now questions arise, serious questions about how to rescue producers. Oil export dependent countries are now facing the current price of 20 to 40 dollars per barrel and are looking at the abyss. Some governments, uh, even the most pessimistic break-even calculations, and in some cases, exchange rates are based on significantly higher prices. The implications of of this budget chaos are endless, and short-term solutions like shutting down wells are proving insufficient to mitigate the crisis. So with no solution so far to COVID, movement will remain limited, and the industry's recovery will depend only on the timeline on lifting restrictions on confinement, which is now almost impossible to predict. And Mooney, that uncertainty is, of course, going to contribute to a growing instability, not only in oil prices, but in geopolitics. Even the most If the most optimistic scenarios prevail and cities successfully open again, it's unlikely that developed countries are going to return to the previous consumption patterns. Work from home and reduced commutes, alternative energy, new work habits, they're only going to continue to reduce the appetite for gas for cars, which, by the way, accounts for half of the world's demand for oil. And nobody expects the friendly skies to open up to pre-COVID levels anytime soon. In addition, China's demand for oil as the second largest consumer in the world after the U.S. is going to take a long time before it reaches 2019 levels again. And we keep looking around the world. Countries like the U.S., Russia, Mexico are in peril as thriving industries dwindle and markets suffer with the falling prices. However, these countries have little more diversified economic activity and may prove a little less vulnerable. Others, however, like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Oman, Angola, Iraq, and many others are in much worse state as their dependence on oil pays for funding for the basics, education, health, banking, and this fragile state of affairs points to another stressor, which we'll discuss today, global security. For We just shed light on 
African nations like Nigeria, hotspots like Iran, failing states like Venezuela, they're of particular concern right now. And in all of these cases, and even in other countries as well, the risk is a shift to even further away from democracy and toward military rule. Many countries in Africa and the Middle East, the crisis is also fertile ground for growing militias and terrorist organizations. And humanitarian consequences are incalculable, but so are the security concerns. Absolutely, because oil and its prices is not only a problem in the developing world. Remember, Muni, the United States has become an oil exporter as well, and these prices are going to put fracking operations in Texas, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Ohio out of business. And while it may feel good for you know you and me to line up at the pump and see you know prices per gallon that are under two dollars, plummeting oil prices are dangerous and they enhance instability. We need to ensure that OPEC, Russia, and the U.S. coordinate somehow to shore up the market so it doesn't fall completely over the cliff. China should also be included in these conversations because it's an enormous market and has tense relations basically with everyone these days. And as the world's leaders try to put out the twin fires of health problems and the economic problems, I, I just it's going to be hard to imagine that finding long-term consensus is going to come easily. We can't stress enough how critical it is to try to find some type of stability in the oil sector. Peter, it's also hard to remember a moment where so many geopolitical clouds have gathered at the same time. It's the perfect storm. We're all focused on coronavirus, but it's not hard to imagine scenarios in which the global energy crisis could become a fuse that lights up worldwide unrest in the very near future. So to respond to this and many other questions, let's welcome Francisco Monaldi to Altamar, a specialist in geopolitics and energy. Francisco lectures and is a fellow in Latin American energy policy at Rice University's Baker Institute. Center for Energy Studies and the Center for uh, the United States and Mexico. He's also taught at Harvard, Stanford, and Tufts, as well as many universities worldwide. Francisco has consulted multilateral institutions, governments, and companies. He's the author of multiple publications on the oil industry and its impact on politics and economics. Francisco, it is a great pleasure to have you with us today. Great to be here. So let's start with an easy question. Will the collapse of prices lead to a new energy order or to global chaos? <laughs> well, I think it's uh, early to know if there's going to be a change in energy order. I mean, the, the situation right now is unprecedented. I mean, uh, the, to give you an idea, the largest decline in oil demand in the history of the oil industry was about 4% in 1981. In, in the financial crisis, this was like 2%, and, and we are projecting about 10% decline uh, on average this year, and right now 30%. So this is a colossal collapse, uh, but it's not clear if uh, you know things will dramatically change once uh, the demand uh, recovers. I mean, it, it might be that for a while we have like uh, airlines consumption will not recover as fast and producers uh, in, in the Gulf will have you know, an advantage because they have lower prices. Uh, at the same time, they, they have high uh, break-even prices, so they will be in political uh, trouble. Uh, but I think once uh, you know, demand recovers, the U.S. oil industry will kick back in, into production. It might not be as, as spectacular as what we saw recently, uh, but I think we will have a, a similar situation uh, in uh, you know a year and a half uh, from now, in fact, one one potential problem would be that the decline in investment right now might lead to eventually 
another hike in prices. How about in the U.S., the world's top producer and consumer, the largest energy companies are expected to significantly shut down production. What does this mean in the medium term for the industry and for the economy? It's going to be a major blow. You know, the, the industry was already sort of recovering from the declining prices in 2014, 2016. And as I said, this is much worse uh, than before. Uh, so it will be a very tough time in the oil patch, in, you know, in, in the Permian Basin, in West Texas, in, in North Dakota is already a, a, a very uh, a difficult time. We already saw a decline of 300 rigs in operation and a lot of people will lose their jobs. So it's going to be a very tough time. Uh, but my uh, uh, expectation is that, uh, you know, eventually prices would have to uh, recover to the levels at which uh, shale is uh, is profitable again. These guys are extremely uh, efficient and effective in recovering investment. And so uh, even though it's it's uh, hard to believe that they will do as well as they did in the, in the past couple of years, I think there will be some significant uh, recovery with consolidation, with tons of bankruptcies, uh, with uh, some significant uh, financial difficulties, but I think they will recover. Francisco, let's take a tour of the world because really the the uh, this huge price decline has ramifications for everybody. So we're gonna we're gonna go from uh, from the Far East to the Mid East to the to Latin America, and of course we'll make a stop in your country of Venezuela. But let me just begin with Russia and Putin. I mean, Russia has really fueled its growth on oil, and you know, in a way, it's been the one thing that has shielded Russia's economy from the tough West sanctions and the rest. And so I guess the question is, is how crippling is this for Russia? That's part of the question. But the second question is, is there a chance that US and Russia now have both an interest in making sure that prices stabilize and will work together to do that? I think this is a very tough time for, for Mr. Putin and, and for Russia. I, I was astonished that he you know, entered into a price war uh, with the Saudis. Uh, I can understand that he was unhappy uh, with the fact that the U.S. was basically taking advantage of the cuts that OPEC Plus uh, were doing, and uh, basically uh, it was uh, just uh, you know resulting in in the, the U.S. increasing production from 10 million barrels to 13 uh, million barrels and surpassing Russia and Saudi Arabia. But you know, starting a price war, uh, uh, of course, I don't think he has uh, thought that this will be so disruptive in terms of demand. But it was you know uh, pretty risky. Uh, but now, you know, I think uh, uh, Russia is in a very tough spot. Uh, Mr. Putin has been careful compared to other rulers in the sense that he has amassed a significant uh, reserves uh, to sort of uh, prepare for a, for a difficult time like this. But his economy is totally dependent on oil. And as you said, I mean, because of sanctions, you know, he, he has difficulty developing uh, anything else. Um, so it will be uh, uh, very difficult for him to, to sustain the levels of uh, approval that he has uh, domestically. And, you know, I, I don't think he, he, he seems uh, too worried about his uh, grip on power, but, but I think it's, uh, it's potentially going to be a, a, a very difficult uh, situation in the next couple of years. He does have, you know, an interest on prices. So I, I, I think this will be, you know, a, a space in which uh, both him and, and President Trump 
uh, have something uh, to negotiate that, as we saw in, in the last uh, month, which was you know pretty astonishing to see that the, the changes in geopolitics that we have seen. You know, Russia and Saudi Arabia used to be uh, uh, totally at odds. They uh, made a pact then. Now, the, uh, President <laughs> Trump was the one bringing OPEC and Russia to the table. I mean, who would have thought that? Of course, times are, are, are very uh, dramatic. Yeah, the, wor the world is upside down. But after all, the U U.S. is now a big producer. So I guess uh, I guess interests are all aligned. Let let's move to China uh, for a second. It's the second largest consumer of oil. And, you know, uh, once again here, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, noise in the media about how China is taking advantage of the coronavirus to sort of strengthen its its position in the world and so is this crisis an opportunity for the chinese to buy cheap oil and what are the gaps of reasoning here i mean are the chinese winners or losers in this and how how, how will this affect this affect them long term sure i mean th this is a, a difficult time to separate you know different effects and of course the oil collapse is one thing but then you have the the uh, coronavirus and many other uh, things happening at, at the same time Uh, so so it, it's hard to sort uh, all out. But I think the specific thing of the decline in the price of oil does benefit China. China is the largest importer of oil in the world by a significant margin, as you, as you said. I mean, the U.S. has become a, a net exporter of oil. And, um, you know, China is in a good position to first take advantage to replenish their strategic reserve, also to Uh, buy assets uh, around the world as, as they have been doing systematically in a sort of with a long-term strategy throughout, you know, Africa, Latin America, uh, even the U.S., uh, Canada. Um, so I think they will continue uh, to do that. This is a great time to be uh, buying uh, stuff. And it will be sort of a, a boost to their economy for their recovery. It will be a big boost to have uh, lower uh, oil prices. Remember, this is the equivalent of when the U.S. was a big, big importer of oil and uh, cheap gas uh, really uh, helped the, the, the U.S. economy at the time. Th this is how China's uh, economy is today. You had mentioned Saudi Arabia, um, who is supposedly in the process of implementing reforms aimed at diversifying the economy. Is the oil revenues or the lack of oil revenues to pay for these reforms going to hinder this, uh, this effort? I think they, they will. I mean, I think uh, MBS is a very aggressive plan to change the structure of the Saudi economy. It is pretty risky. Uh, I think, you know, they have uh, tried that in the past in, in a less uh, spectacular way, but they have, and other countries, oil uh, dependent countries have tried. And it requires basically tons of money from the state to, uh, you know, promote these uh, new cities and these uh, pharaonic uh, uh, projects. And uh, he's facing actually the, the opposite. You know, he, he faces a very tough uh, structural situation, which is the population growth in Saudi Arabia is not matched by the increase in, in oil revenues. And of course, during the, the, the current uh, situation, they will lose a lot of their uh, reserves. They, they have significant uh, reserves, but, you know, they will burn them uh, relatively uh, uh, quickly. So, of course, uh, they, they have the lowest uh, cost uh, uh, with their neighbors uh, around that region. And so they, they are able to sustain very low prices from the perspective of oil investment. But but in terms of expenditures, they, they are in a very tough spot. And I think they will have uh, a very difficult time uh, following uh, MBS's plan uh, right now. Francisco, let's talk about 
your country, my neighbor, Venezuela, probably the world's biggest victim of the oil crisis as it most literally relies on oil for food. And under the current regime and U.S. sanctions and beyond the economic catastrophe, what do you believe will be the impact on this crisis on the political situation, which is already supremely complex? Yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, uh, lost all you know superlatives to talk about what uh, ha is happening in Venezuela, right? You know, it's the perfect storm. Is Armageddon? It's 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 really horrible situation. Imagine the combination of you know the collapsing prices that basically puts the price of oil of of the Venezuelan basket just below the cost. But on top of that, Venezuela has to give very significant discounts in order for anyone to be willing to take the oil with the risk of, uh, you know, of uh, U.S. Uh, sanctions. On top of that, of course, the other source of revenue that they had recently, which is remittances, is going to really dry up with the situation in, in neighboring countries in terms of the quarantine. And, uh, you know, the Venezuela, to give you an idea, my estimate is that we'll receive less than $4 billion this year from oil revenues. When Hugo Chavez was in, uh, you know, in the middle of the boom, they received a hundred billion dollars. So, imagine if you uh, if you would have uh, been asked how can a regime that was a populist regime that bought the support of the population will survive from a decline of ninety six percent in the in the in the oil revenues? It would be unthinkable, right? So it's pretty astonishing what they have been able. Uh, to survive. I think this is going to be a horrible year in Venezuela. It seemed at the beginning of the year that it wasn't going to be that bad, but now, you know, it's probably going to be the worst year of many, many, many bad years. Is Maduro going to be able to survive this? You know, he has survived an amazing collapse before. It seems hard to believe that that he will be able to, to survive this one, but, you know, it, it's hard to know what's the theory of what exactly what's going to happen. Are the military going to you know, rebel uh, uh, against him, uh, realizing that uh, th their survival is, uh, you know, to, to survive in this situation. I I hard to tell. Francisco, let's uh, let's move to uh, uh, the other large Latin American oil producer, which is Mexico. Uh, can you just walk us through? There's been a lot written in the newspaper recently about Pemex and its incredible financial troubles and the effect of that on the national economy. And of course, the effect on that on AMLO, because President Andrés Manuel López Obrador had promised to make Pemex the much larger and more important uh, than it has been for years. And so wh where do you think it's going? I mean, is Mexico sufficiently diversified now that it, this won't be a major blow to the economy or is it still really dependent on petroleum for its economic health? You know, it's really interesting because if you look at just the, the, the structure of the economy, Mexico should not be uh, in, in deep trouble for uh, because of the decline in price of oil. They, they have become uh, a net exporter, but of a, a very minor net exporters. They import, you know, almost as much as they as they export. So uh, they still have, you know, about 10 to 15 percent of the fiscal revenues coming uh, from oil. Uh, but the, the economy is extremely uh, well diversified and, and it shouldn't be a problem. But as you point out, uh, uh, Lopez Obrador has, uh, uh, you know, bet everything on this idea of making Pemex great again and, you know, spending billions of dollars in, uh, in, a, in a refinery. And it turns out that the company lost $18 billion last year. And they just reported that in this quarter, they lost more than $20 billion, you know, which is, you know, uh, an astonishing amount of money for the for the Mexican economy is more than the expenditures in security, for example. So 
it is a really problematic. Pemex credit status went to to junk uh, the, their bonds uh, by the rating agencies, and so I'm afraid that if he doesn't dramatically change his oil policy, um, Pemex will drag down the, the Mexican government. Uh, you know, they they started with a sound fiscal position when Lopez Obrador got into power, but that that's not going to be the case anymore. And and if he continues following his policies, I think Pemex will drag him down. It will be really bad. Let me ask one more geographic uh, question, which is about Africa, in particular sub-Saharan Africa, which is so vulnerable to uh, this oil shock. Is there any opportunity here to reduce Africa's reliance on on oil, or do you think that this is now going to be just another motive for destabilization in many countries in Africa? And, And there are many big oil producers in Africa, Nigeria, Angola. I mean, this is not an unimportant region for oil. So how do you see what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, Africa has become much more dependent on oil. During the oil boom, you know, tons of new African countries became oil uh, producers and oil exporters. And even though if you uh, look at the size of the oil revenues generated by Africa, it's not as high, but as a percentage of the of their African economies, it's, it's humongous. So they, they are extremely dependent uh, on oil. I, I think something like half of the countries in, in that region have uh, a dependency of some sort of on, uh, on hydrocarbons. So it, it's going to be really bad uh, for for Africa. It, it's it's going to be you know really bad for a big economy like Nigeria, which was already in bad shape. Uh, you know Angola, uh, also Equatorial Guinea. You know it's a, it's going to be it's, it's a basket case uh, uh, already. Of course, uh, a, a tiny country, uh, but many many of the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa will have difficulties and they don't have uh, you know an alternative uh, at hand to uh, diversify their economies in, in short time so i think unfortunately the volatility of the price of oil that we will witness uh, moving forward uh, i think will affect these economies and eventually will affect the politics uh, which by the way uh, going back to sort of your first question i think you know this is uh, uh, my my worry that the long lasting negative effect on the politics of these regions. You know, you can witness what's happening in Latin America last year because of the declining commodities that happened five years before. And, uh, you know, it, it's really scary to think the consequences down the road that, that the current uh, collapse uh, might have. I want to ask another question here on because of the volatility. I mean, we're looking I, I gather from what you said earlier, we're looking at a time of volatility for, for the next, not only the short term, but probably the medium term. I mean, is this going to be helpful or a hindrance to renewables and the growth of renewables in the world? That That's a good question. You know, it, it's, it's hard to tell because, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of talk about, you know, this is going to bring the energy transition forward, et cetera. But, you know, you have basically um, uh, a decline in the price of oil that makes it, you know, much cheaper to uh, use hydrocarbons than any other alternative. So it, it's not clear that, that it will have, you know, a, a positive effect on, uh, uh, on the renewables, uh, on the increase in, in the use of, of renewables. On the other hand, it is true that a lot of the oil companies in the world have been pressured to, you know, move away from oil, uh, some into gas, some into other uh, renewable uh, energies. And, you know, with limited budgets, they might have to, to make some 
uh, tough decisions in terms of investment uh, in oil. But I, I, I do think that eventually uh, this, uh, uh, if, if there is such a lack of investment, it will bring back the, the price of oil up. Francisco, to as a, as a last question, and hopefully with a little bit of an optimistic undertone, the World Economic Forum has stated that this is, again, the beginning of a new energy order, and it is an opportunity to transform energy markets and generate global cooperation. That seems um, a little bit idyllic right now, uh, but do you believe... I feel, like I, need, I feel like I need to sing when you say that. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, it, it's wishful thinking. I'm an optimist. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dying to think whether there's an upside to all this. What are some of the potential positive outcomes, if any, of this, um, of this potential alignment? Uh, I mean, I, I, I am actually, you know, pretty concerned of what I'm seeing in terms of international cooperation these days. You know, I think this... Uh, uh, event that should have been uh, one of those events that really brought significant cooperation has shown the, the weakness of the international uh, system uh, the, today and the lack of leadership in, in many areas. So I, I wouldn't bet that, that this is uh, the opportunity to, for example, uh, you know, something that has been talked about, which is a, a carbon tax uh, by, applied by the, by the bigger economies. Uh, you know, this could be an, an, an opportunity because, you know, you have uh, for example, if you apply it now, given that the price uh, of, uh, you know, of, of energy is so low, you know, consumers will not feel it uh, that much. Uh, it's also an opportunity, for example, uh, for countries like Saudi Arabia to totally get rid of energy subsidies. And many of the uh, countries in the world that the G20 wanted to eliminate uh, energy subsidies. Well, this is the, the perfect time in the sense that, you know, you can uh, match the, the, the international price to the domestic price. Uh, but... Uh, I uh, unfortunately am not that that optimistic that that this uh, you know uh, uh, opportunity for cooperation will be seized by uh, by the key countries and I, I think you know there is a lot of uh, instability and, and and it will be hard for for these things to to move. Francisco Monaldi, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you. Okay, Peter, my optimistic scenario was knocked down by our guest. Uh, but I continue to think that even if not voluntarily, just by force of um, necessity, countries are going to have to come together in issues such as vaccine and issues such as uh, controlling the budgets of, that were formerly produced by oil money. And I, I just find it difficult to believe that this tribal behavior is going to continue and have such a negative impact overall in not only the oil-dependent countries, but in the rest of the world. Tribal uh, behavior is the right, exactly the right way to describe the international situation that we have all had since 2017 when Donald Trump came to power. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid the abdication of U.S. leadership is the common and repetitive denominator to all of these problems in which there is the largest country, the most important country, the leader of the West, the uh, strongest superpower is simply uninterested in being an international leader to promote cooperation. It has no problem being a leader in promoting bilateral interests. And I think it was interesting that Francisco pointed out the really weird scene of Trump uh, trying to get MBS and Vladimir Putin to become friends again is a sort of really spectral scene from almost an interplanetary visitor. But 
I, I, you know, I think in terms of leadership, you need the United States to get a lot of that stuff done. And that's not going to happen unless Joe Biden gets elected president. All right. I almost agree with you because I believe about the change in government, changing the attitudes, but it's not just Trump. It's a Bolsonaro problem. It's an AMLO problem. It's a Putin problem. And, and a lot of these countries are run by characters who are very much fans of tribalism. There's no doubt that that is absolutely true. But I, I also believe that when the United States speaks, it speaks with a force still that is much larger than that of Bolsonaro and of Putin when it comes to cooperation. And it is has all of the strengths to be the leader of a cooperative movement. And at the same time, all of the strengths to basically be the tribal leader to disband all of those cooperative movements. And so I think a lot depends on where the United States wants to land itself in the next four years. Well, thank you for joining us on All Tomorrow. See you next time. <laughs> 